the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hello, everyone. Today is Sunday, September 25th, and welcome back to the Behind the Headlines show. With me in the studio today is Mr. William Barbet. Hello, everyone. Mr. Harrison Coley. Hello. And from across the pond, we will soon be joined by the inimitable Joe Quinn and Neil Bradley. But until then, we're going to start off... Pretty much, I think, where we left off last week, uh, we were discussing the U.S. oops accidental attack um, by U.S. forces. Uh, other countries had claimed responsibility. Um, I believe it was uh, Australia. Denmark. Denmark. Uh, UK. UK, maybe New Zealand also. <laughs> Uh, on the uh, Syrian Arab army uh, in El Dazor uh, fighting an offensive against ISIS. And this this attack on the part of the U.S. killed over 80 Syrian soldiers, um, possibly more, another 100 injured. And right after that attack, uh, ISIS, at an advantage, uh, mounted its own attack. Um, so effectively this was what we believe to be and what many analysts are, are, who are objective are saying was basically air support on the part of the U S now just following that just a day after, uh, we did that show, uh, something else happened. We have no shortage of news this week on Syria, but, um, but there was a, a kind of a PR counteroffensive on the part of the U.S. and the West uh, in something that occurred to a U.N. convoy, which was a, a great point of contention um, because for several days uh, the West was saying, why isn't Syria permitting you know, the U.N. convoy to go into Aleppo? And uh, basically um, the, the routes were unsecure and, and Syria was unprepared to... Um, to claim that the UN convoy would be safe in going to Costello Road, uh, which is the road that they had to take in order to uh, deliver humanitarian aid. So um, what happens? Uh, the UN convoy is just on the heels of uh, this event that we discussed last week. Uh, it's attacked, um, and a number of conflicting uh, sources of the attack were, were put into mainstream news uh, almost immediately. Uh, Russia and Syria were blamed almost immediately by the Western press. Um, AP and I think some other sources cited, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, unknown sources in Washington stating that uh, it was uh, Russia and or Syrian forces that, that had attacked this convoy. Uh, but there were a number of uh, inconsistencies 
questions that arose, um, logical questions, uh, based on the idea that somehow Syria and or Russia had uh, dropped a bomb on this UN convoy. So maybe we can discuss a little bit um, as, a, as a kind of opening here uh, why the initial narrative that was presented to us uh, could not have been correct. Well, first of all, if you look at the latest reporting, um, Washington Post just put out their latest kind of rationale, explanation for what happened. And if you read the various sources leading up to this late, latest Washington Post one, first it started out with, like you said, Ilan, there was the, the immediate reports, like almost immediately after it happened, came out, and the Western media was citing sources in the area where this Aleppo convoy was attacked, and this guy that they quoted claimed to be, or they labeled him as, like the head of White Helmets in the in the region. White Helmets is this U.S.-U.K.-backed so-called humanitarian uh, group that is always on the scene to take pictures of you know bodies after airstrikes and things like that. And this guy, if you look at the video that he filmed of himself and put online, um, he's speaking in English, he first thing he says is that there were helicopters above in the air and that it was the Syrian army dropping barrel bombs. So the first account was that barrel bombs were dropped. And then same news reporters were quoting the same guy, same name, as and citing him as being in Aleppo, in the city of Aleppo, besieged Aleppo. And uh, so... uh, and then, you know, well, first they didn't identify him as, the, as this White Helmets guy. Then they identified him as, like, the leader of White Helmets in Aleppo. In Aleppo. And then he was saying that there were, there were warplanes overhead and that it was the Russians. And so these both these different accounts were quoted by different people. And now this latest Washington Post one is saying that it was, oh, it was, first it was the Syrians dropping barrel bombs from helicopters. And then the Russians came and finished, finished everyone off with, uh, with airstrikes from their, from their jets. So, in addition to this, there you know there are just uh, a few other just contradictory details of who was saying what, who saw what. But so far, that's all that we have is the these Al Qaeda linked groups like the White Helmets telling the Western media stuff. So this is basically the Western media telling the Western media um, what the Western media is going to say, um, because all of these sources are tied to Al Qaeda, uh, which is interesting in and of itself. But uh, one of the other contradictions was that the um, the first story was that the aid convoy had dropped off its aid in the city of Aleppo and then was was on its way west to um, this place called Orem. Um, I believe that was the name of the, of the city. Mm-hmm. And then once it was there, and it was I guess it was parked next to this um, Syrian Red Crescent um, f- facility, and that's where it was bombed. Now the Washington Post is saying that it was on its way from the Red Cross facility or the Red Crescent facility into Aleppo, um, which doesn't really make sense. And just hold on a sec. I think we have Joe and Neil on the line. Are you there, guys? If so, welcome. Yep, we're here. All right. We're here. Cool. I have one. Sorry, we're late. That's all right. We were just giving a little bit of background on the convoy attack. Um, was it on Monday? Yes. And just some of the contradictory narratives that came out about that. Um, so just finishing up on that. So the only sources that were that we have that were saying it was airstrikes um, or helicopters, something from the air, was the 
was these like white helmet type guys. And so immediately the U S got on board with that and, and a whole bunch of, you know, other countries saying that this was, it had to have been the, the Russians or the Syrians. Um, some American generals even said that, uh, those are the only two parties possible that could have done this, ignoring the fact that the U S has jets in the air over Syria too. I mean, that should automatically qualify them as a possible party at least, but they're not going to admit that. But, then um, Lavrov is in New York because of the UN General Assembly for the 71st General Assembly, and he has a meeting with um, Stoltenberg, who is what's his position in NATO? Is he like Grand Supreme Master? Civilian head. He's a civilian head. Okay, Supreme Master Wizard. Grand Puba. Grand Puba of NATO, Stoltenberg, and then after that, Stoltenberg comes out and says that NATO will, you know, can't. Um, or we'll, can't speculate on who was responsible. They can't even say if it was airstrikes or not. The UN ends up saying the same thing, as well as a whole bunch of other people. So after this meeting, you have all these, um, like, you know, Western, even pro-Western sources saying that they're not even going to say that it was even airstrikes. Meanwhile, the U.S. is still saying this, that it was airstrikes. Everyone else is saying, no, we need an investigation. We can't even say if it was airstrikes or not. And this comes after the Russians... Um, without explicitly blaming the U.S., say, oh, well, you know what? We just happened to see this Predator drone uh, leave Interlick Air Base and fly to the location where the convoy was right before it got there, hover around for a bit while the explosions were going on or the fires were started, and then leave. And so they never even, they never even said that uh, the Predator drone had attacked it. They just threw it out there that it was in the vicinity and that they saw it there, um, which is... And, and that's the way that Russians tend to do this, is they, they'll release this kind of obvious but vaguely worded statement that um, suggests a certain narrative, but they, but they leave it open so that in the future they can always deny it if, you know, let's say, the Americans take the hint and do something about it. Otherwise, in the future, the, you know, the narrative will get expanded upon. And um, they did the same thing with Turkey, if you remember, mm -hmm. when... Um, Last year, they re they said that they had all this evidence about um, Turkey's involvement with ISIS and the oil trade, and they didn't really present a lot of that evidence like publicly. Of course, they they had like um, the video footage of the all the oil trucks crossing the border and stuff like that. But I mean, they it's not like they released a 200-page report listing all the people involved and who was what was going on. Um, but so they they released it's kind of like a um, this limited disclosure. And then, of course, once Turkey gets its act together or, you know, makes an agreement, then you can kind of just forget that you said all that stuff and not release all the details and just, like, let bygones be bygones. Um, it looks like the same thing was kind of going on with this with this Predator drone. Um, incidentally, uh, we've got two little sought exclusives on the site from the past few days. The first one on the... Um, the Aleppo convoy attack, and interestingly, there there was a video that came out of the, alleging to be of the attack, and it was played on uh, various Western news agencies, news um, channels like NBC, ABC, all, all stations like that. And when you look at the video um, that, that most of them have, it shows it's at night. It shows this kind of explosion, and it's like really shaky. Um, the camera, which is pretty typical of of the kind of jihadi videos that get posted online, 
Um, but then ABC has another version of the video, which is per, like it's kind of a little bit shaky, but it's like ten times clearer. You've got a wider field of, of vision of it, and and it shows this kind of strange explosion. Well, it's uh, it's like you see the explosion, and then there's like this ring of like sparks, like a secondary explosion in the air. It kind of looks like some kind of firework going off uh, all around the the cloud of the explosion. And um, I don't, I can't verify it, or you know, at this point. But there is one commenter that uh, that we found online who who is saying that he, you know, he's he he knows a bunch about uh, munitions, explosives, and that the Hellfire missile, which is typically the the payload of a Predator drone, that's kind of one of its signatures because it has this what they call metal augmentation that um, that basically metal particles that they that enhance the explosion for this thermobaric expo- explosion and that's one of the signatures is once the the explosion goes off these little particles then kind of like reignite or they're a bit late igniting and it creates this kind of visual um, field of sparks that go off and that's exactly what you see in this video so he was saying you know if I was if I just had this video I'd say that this was a hellfire explosion and like you know coincidentally or not hellfire explosions tend to explode above ground they don't explode directly on impact with the ground so they don't leave a crater and because they're um, they've got these extra incendiary devices they cause fires and what the syrians and russians are saying about the observable damage at this convoy was that it looked like first of all like all they saw was evidence of fire and there were no craters, so they they were saying that that kind of discounts the idea of an airstrike, but it doesn't necessarily discount the idea of a hellfire strike from something like a Predator drone. So just a, a bit of interesting data there. Um, it looks highly possible, highly probable, that this is actually what happened, is that the, um, the Americans launched their drone from Interlick. Uh, the drone then fires a hellfire at this convoy, explodes it, and then they tried to use it as an... Well, they did use it as another excuse for blaming Syria and Russia. So basically, we just um, blew up and and machine-gunned down a whole bunch of Syrians in uh, Deir Azor, and now, because we've got a little bit of bad press about it, we're going to kill a bunch of humanitarian aid workers, blow up some... Uh, this large aid convoy, and then blame it on Syria to distract, you know, um, distract people and put the attention on them instead of us. And so I think that pretty much covers that. Don't you think? Yeah, there was an yes. earlier video of a of a Russian drone, probably apparently was taking oh yeah taking shots of a some jihadi truck. Pulling up near the convoy, but there wasn't any evidence of it doing any attacks. Yeah, because if you if you look at the situation that was going on, like Ilan had said right at the top of the show, this was a um, like the main issue that the the Americans were harping on about is that the you know Assad wouldn't let this humanitarian aid in, and of course, um, being on the end of this propaganda you know info war for so long. Russians and Syrians know um, that this is a very, let's say, um, delicate situation, especially when dealing with like humanitarian aid, because first of all, they want the aid to get in, and um, what doesn't get mentioned um, in the Western media is all the aid that does get in, um, like Belarus and Russia have been 
shipping in tons of aid for accessible regions like in Latakia, that all gets ignored. But for the aid that's really needed in a place like East Aleppo, it's this it's this sor- constant source of material for uh, Western media and Western governments to to demonize Assad because it's so hard to get aid there simply because the terrorists in the region won't let it get through. And then that can be blamed on Assad. So when when they finally negotiated and planned a way for this aid to get to East Aleppo, um, the Russians naturally, um, you know, did something very reasonable. They followed the, the convoys with drones to basically, um, you know, see the situation, see that they got where they were going and see who was, um, you know, any, any incidents that might occur along the way. So they released this short video from part of the, um, the route of the convoy. They didn't say exactly at which, I don't think they said exactly where the convoy was when this video was taken, whether it was on the way from Turkey to Aleppo or on the way from Aleppo to Orem. But it shows this convoy, and riding next to it is this pickup truck pill, um, um, dragging along a you know a large um, mortar, so this kind of like heavy weaponry that the the rebels would use. And and of course, this is what Syria and Russians have been saying for months and months: is that the the rebel groups, so-called rebel groups, use these humanitarian aid convoys not only. T- um, to smuggle in weapons and ammunition, but to um, even if they are aid, they'll use them to you know, use the medicines for themselves, basically just to to use them for the the fighters and not the civilians. But they also use them as kind of um, humanitarian cover. So they'll just um, drive by along with a whole bunch of weapons next to this convoy because they know they won't get bombed and attacked while they're next to this uh, humanitarian aid. So I think it was Lavrov or one of the Russian generals made that comment this week about that video. Is it, It's not clear who was accompanying whom in this video, whether the, whether the, um, the mortar, guy driving the truck with the mortar, is kind of using the uh, the convoy as, as, a, as cover, or whether the cover, or whether the convoy is basically shuttling weapons. Now, I guess it's half a dozen, half a dozen of one and half a dozen of the other. But um, just, I guess, the, the point of that video is just to show that um, it's the situation it was not quite that simple. Mm-hmm. And if you were just to see that video, um, I think that was the first... They released that video before they mentioned the Predator drone. And so if you just have that video, that leaves open... Um, like a whole bunch, uh, well, an additional like series of narratives, possible narratives. So by just showing that, um, it's possible that um, you could even say, well, was this really a humanitarian aid convoy? You know, after it had it had dropped off its um, its aid in Aleppo, and it was on its way to Orem. Um, you know, was it was it a humanitarian aid convoy once it got once it was on its way to Orem, or was it um, transporting arms and being used as a um, as you know, a cover for for transporting arms. Now you know who knows, but that's that at least was a possibility once that video was released. And um, but now it it looks like at least with the um, with the release of the information about the predator drone that they've kind of taken it a step further with that narrative. Again, not explicitly blaming the 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 Americans, but making it very uh, suggestive in the way they presented the information. 
Well, you used the term a few minutes ago, humanitarian cover, Harrison. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems that uh, this has been the, uh, the big lie, uh, as, as Joe phrased it recently in one of his focuses, um, that the U.S. has been so successful um, among a portion of, the, of people paying attention to the story uh, in conveying or, or, or trying to fool them about um, how many stories have we heard in the past three, four months that have said, you know, last hospital in Aleppo uh, bombed by Russia and or Syria? Last doctor killed. Last doctor killed. And, and yet we have uh, journalists like Eva Bartlett on the ground who have physically gone to Aleppo and places uh, surrounding it uh, who have visited, who have talked to administrators, doctors, uh, and have and have found that this is, you know, this is just a big lie, essentially, uh, that there have been and continue to be uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of uh, operational hospitals and uh, and places that are still working to uh, help um, Syrians who are under siege by the so-called rebels. And these people are continued to be uh, paid by the Syrian government. Um, uh, but this is just another, uh, just another fact that, that never registers in the minds of, of uh, the West because it's never reported. Um, so we have, uh, we have these, these attacks on humanity that the U.S. would like us to believe that Syria and Russia is responsible for, uh, which, are, which is totally ridiculous, of course. And, um, and we have these guys on the ground, uh, these white helmets, so-called, who are supposed to be these kinds of uh, emergency workers. And, uh, William, we were talking a little bit about who these folks were and, um, and how what they do is, uh, is kind of purposely designed to uh, feed into the uh, mainstream Western narrative of of, um, of Assad as the evil bully. Harrison, you talked about it a little bit a few minutes ago as well. Um, who, who are these guys, William? What, 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 what do they do? White hats? White helmets? <laughs> white, or white helmets? Yeah, there's a... They're supposed to be what they call the Syria civil defense. <clears throat> now, it's interesting, if you're in Syria and you want to call the Syria civil defense, you dial 113 when you're inside Syria. But there is no public number for the White Helmets. So that's, uh, you know, why not? Why does this multi-million dollar U.S. and NATO state-funded first responder NGO state-of-the-art equipment supplied by the U.S. and the EU via Turkey have no central number for civilians to call when the bombs fall. So, anyway, the, they are a very interesting group. They're well-funded um, to the tune of, what, $23 million? Mm -hmm. um, even Temer had said that they are funded via USAID. Mm -hmm. um, and the Western mythology, the media mythology goes to say they are made up of former bankers, builders, taxi drivers, students, teachers, pretty much everything apart from rescue workers. 
according to the much-repeated phase, uh, phrase used by the British ex-military, USAR, trainer James Lemazurier, who specializes in outsourcing warfare, the kind of private security operations exemplified by the likes of Blackwater and Dynacor. Uh, running operations through Blackwater gave CIA power to have people abducted and all that. Wait, William, so are you saying that the White Helmets was actually organized and led by a former British intelligence officer with ties to yep. mercenary groups? Yep, he's, uh, he's graduated from Britain's elite Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst and is said to be an ex-British military intelligence officer involved in a number of other NATO humanitarian intervention theaters of the war, including Bosnia, Kosovo, and Iraq, as well as postings in Lebanon and Palestine. He also boasts a series of high-profile posts at the UN, EU, and UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office, not to mention his connections back to the infamous Blackwater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they have like uh, $60 million in their back pocket, courtesy of USAID and the UK Foreign Office, and various EU nations like the Netherlands. This group is possibly one of the most feted and funded entities within the West anti-Syrian NGO complex, a pivotal part of the clandestine shadow state building enterprise inside of Syria. Um, And like many other NGOs, the White Helmets have been deployed by the West to derail the Syrian state, first by undermining existing civic structures and by disseminating staged Um, PR to facilitate regime change propaganda through Western and Gulf state media outlets. Now, they're the ones who are also been crying to have a no-fly zone, which the U.S. has been trying to push. So they're using the white helmets with their staged uh, rescues and stuff like that of why they want a no-fly zone. So... um, They claim they are not tied to any political group in Syria or anywhere else, yet they are embedded with al-Nusra Front, ISIS, and affiliated with the majority of U.S. allied terrorist brigades infesting Syria. In fact, someone made a trip uh, to Syria and was struck by responses from the majority of Syrians when asked if they knew who the White Helmets were. The majority said they'd never heard of them. (laughs) But others who follow... Western media noted that they are a NATO construct being used to infiltrate Syria as a major player in the terrorist support network. I just want to comment in between there that if these guys were a legitimate, like NGO, if they were legitimate kind of first responders, um, like take something like even, I don't even know if this is a good example, but Doctors Without Borders, um, as far as I know, like they tend to put hospitals like anywhere, and they'll like maybe excluding Syria because there's some shady stuff going on in Syria. But even like Yemen, there's um, there's you know MSF hospitals set up in Houthi held areas and non Houthi held areas, and so they're kind of nonpartisan in that sense. And that's kind of what any real humanitarian agency would do is that they would their primary purpose would be to um, serve anyone. And that's what a lot of doctors um, will say is that, you know, it doesn't matter who's wounded. Even a lot of the kind of possibly shady doctors in Syria, um, like let's say I, I saw an interview with a, 
kind of like a, a, a an American Syrian, I think, who was talking about um, about the hospitals in Syria and how well I've been to Syria several times. He says, and I'll treat anyone as long as they're wounded. I'll treat them, and he was using that to justify treating like um, you know rebel militants and stuff like that. But my point is simply that humanitarian aid groups, if they're really humanitarian, will tend to help anyone. It's the it's the basically it's the humanitarian crisis that is the issue, and yet with a group like the White Helmets, so you'd think that if they were a real NGO, that they'd be on both sides of the conflict, because there are people getting killed on both sides, people um, you know being shelled, um, being hit by snipers, small arms fire, mortars, uh, airstrikes. People are dying all over the place, and yet these guys only operate in areas held by al-Nusra or al-Nusra affiliates. There's even a picture of an al-Nusra fighter standing in front of one of those spots. Yeah. <laughs> and not only that, you there's tons of videos online of these white helmet guys saying that they're that they totally support al-Nusra. They they're, you know, they're jubilated when al-Nusra will take this take a new um, area from the Syrian army. Um, there's videos of Nusra or white helmet guys um, observing executions carried out by al-Nusra, and then, you know, they're right on hand, and then they'll take the bodies away after the guy's shot in the head. Um, these Costume guys, change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they put on their white helmets, and then they get rid of the bodies. Um, so these guys, they're not a humanitarian aid group. They are uh, a, a faction, an arm of al-Nusra, mm -hmm. and they've got tens of millions of dollars coming their way from the U.S. and the U.K. I yeah. mean, it's it's just nonsense. And the real... Syrian civilian defense people, they even step up and talk about these so-called white helmets. Um, uh, one such uh, guy stated that you know back in 2012 in East Aleppo, um, they came in and they drove us out of our homes, and they came to the Syrian civil defense yard and they killed some of my comrades. They kidnapped others. They wanted to force me to work with them. I escaped at night. I was forced to leave my teenage sons behind. They burned my house to the ground, and they put my name on all the terrorist checkpoints. So if I go back, they will kill me. And he goes on to say, they are terrorists, not rescuers. They stole our ambulances and three of our five engines. They don't do any rescue work. They drive around with guns in the back of their car like any other terrorist. Some are from East Aleppo, some are from Syria, but not from Aleppo, and some are even coming in from abroad. Well, in a recent article that was posted to Saad about the White Helmets, uh, there's a link uh, to, a, to a trailer of a short documentary, so-called. You can watch it on Netflix. Yeah, it's available on Netflix. Uh, I don't know if you, you want to stomach it, but uh, the, just the point is this. Um, if you click on that link and watch the trailer for this uh, this documentary about the White Helmets, it is one of the slickest pieces of propaganda um, I think it, you know we've seen in, in a very long time. It's really well produced. It's got the sympathetic music. Uh, it's got a, a portrayal of these White Helmets people as these uh, selfless heroes, um, and uh, it, it's gotten this film has gotten recognition in a couple of uh, film festivals. Um, now, what 
what did my heart good was to read the comments on this uh, YouTube trailer page on the White Helmets, and people were completely calling it out for exactly what it was, which was pure propaganda. Um, so it, you know, just another uh, strong reminder of how this is a uh, this is a intense uh, propaganda war we're watching, uh, as well as a real war with. Uh, Sadly, a lot of uh, casualties and uh, and suffering, um, but that could only be perpetuated uh, if if this false narrative of you know humanitarian's humanitarian intentions and goodwill on the part of the U.S. can be perpetuated. Um, so, did, did we have anything else about the white helmets? That, uh, First of all, I think we've got a caller. Okay. So. Caller, Hello. you're on the line. Who do we have with us yeah, today? This, yeah, this is Stephen. Hey, Stephen, how's it going? Hi, Stephen. I just, I just wanted to make a comment. Um, I'm listening online through uh, Chrome, and um, you, you, it's the program's cutting out, and I have to uh, rebuffer. I don't know if it's my, it's on my end or your end. Just, just wanted to point that out. Okay, well, we'll get some. We'll ask our chatters to to let us know. It might. Do you usually use Chrome? Yeah, yeah. The only way I can listen to your program is through Chrome um, mm. on my, uh, my MacBook, and uh, I, I, don't, I guess I could listen through Mozilla as well. I've done that before, but not, but not Safari. But anyway, I just wanted to mention that. But I just wanted to recount an anecdote. Um, eight years ago, I got involved with the. Uh, I became involved with the Obama campaign, and you know, the first time I had ever, uh, you know, went door to door. You know, I, I voted, I've always voted to the left, um, you know, starting from Clinton and this and that. So anyway, the person that was in charge of, uh, you know, organizing this section of Orlando that I was at, um, it's very interesting. You know, we got, you know, we got Obama elected, you know, there's a party and all of that. And then um, what was interesting is afterwards, I tried to get people to stay involved and put pressure um, for change. And, um, you know, I had a month and, you know, that soon just faded away and it was just, the apathy was incredible. But anyway, this woman today that was the leader of our part of Orlando has, uh, an NGO. She's living in Washington and, um, she put up an ad that was promoting the Netflix white helmet. And um, so I went on her page and I, I did a debunked it. You know, I pointed out that the white helmets were part of propaganda and um, also mentioned the dynamics behind the Syrian violence. And um, so anyway, my comments were blocked. Um, she doesn't have a lot of traffic on it, but this is her NGO page. My comments were blocked, deleted, and then helmets was was taken down so look at this ngo you see that they use um young young african-american people you know doing good things in their community as their stick and um government has like really sophisticated uh disinformation network Stephen, I think you've been you're cutting in and out. 
Um, if you can hear us, we uh, we checked with the chatters, and it looks like it's probably your connection because everyone else can hear us fine. Uh, okay. I'd recommend I'd recommend using Firefox, but I, I heard I just heard that. So do you have a do you have a, a short maybe soundbite before you cut out again? Uh, no, no, I was just I was just I was just pointing out. Um, well, I'm I'm very heartened by uh, like let's let's wipe out the rats in Aleppo. Let's you know that's going to be a huge victory. Um, and uh, that's that's basically all I had to say. But um, yeah, the, the disinformation war is just incredible and sophisticated. And um, you know we're we're going to know in decades to come how how just how deep this really goes. But anyway, I'll I'll listen to the rest of y'all's show and God bless y'all. Take care. Bye bye. All right, thanks, Stephen. Bye bye. Bye, Stephen. Yeah. yeah. The other interesting thing about these white helmets is a. Uh, the the head of it is his name is Raid Saleh. <clears throat> now he's a uh, he's publicly been the one that's been calling for an implementation of no fly zone because he states on their website that barrel bombs sometimes filled with chlorine are the biggest killers of civilians in Syria today. Yeah, our unarmed and neutral rescue workers have saved more than forty thousand people from the attacks in Syria. But there are many we cannot reach. There are children trapped in rubble and cannot hear. For them, the UN Security Council must follow through on its demands to make uh, to stop the barrel bombs by introducing no-fly zone. Now that's tantamount to you know asking for war against these against Russia. Um, but he's also an interesting case. Um, he, his organization is being showered with these millions of dollars, but yet he's not allowed free access to American soil. He, he was supposed to, uh, to receive some interaction award and he was supposed to go to Washington to receive this. So he gets on the plane from Turkey, flies to the United States and they, while he's in the air, apparently denied him entry. So as he lands in the U S he had to turn around and fly back. (laughs) So Washington was kind of curious about this, uh, the State Department, Mark Toner, was questioned about you know the details surrounding his visit. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. And there was seemed to be a lot of confusion there. But Mr. Toner finally came out and said, "Well, any individual, again, I'm broadening my language here for specific reasons, but any individual in any group suspected of ties or relations with extremist groups, or that we had believed to be a security threat to the United States, we would act accordingly." But that does not, by extension, mean we condemn or would cut off ties to the group for which that individual works for. <laughs> and then the questioner goes, well, okay, that just seems a little odd. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that's a tacit, tacit admission that uh, the White Helmets are a bunch of terrorists, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah... I just wanted to make a few points on the um, NGOs are have, have been used. Um, when people hear the word NGO in a war zone, you can basically just think uh, intelligence, Western intelligence uh, operation. Um, I think there were something like in Afghanistan, for example, um, after the U.S. started bombing and invaded Afghanistan, in 2002, uh, there were there were a few dozen, I think, in Afghanistan NGOs previous to that. And once the war started, there were uh, 
We went up to 2,500, 2,500 international NGOs in in Afghanistan. And I mean, the the governments, Western, the governments of Western, uh, you know, Western powers are, who are involved in wars, basically, um, they know, they admit, I think they've, they've actually admitted, um, let me see if I can find it here somewhere, um, in Afghanistan on that 2,500, um, 2,500 NGOs, international NGOs, there's a, it's a U.S., uh, a U.S., I don't know if it was a general or some member of the U.S. government basically said that, um, that, that NGOs were used as intelligence gathering operations in Afghanistan, uh, specifically. Um, so they were they're pretty much, yeah. Intelligence gathering, and obviously, then they use that, you know, uh, yeah, propaganda as well. Um, so they're 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 not uh, they're not very secretive about this either, you know. Although although you know the media tends to spin it as a, these humanitarian organizations, but these things are by and large used. It's it's standard operating procedure. Yes, the Red Cross was instrumental in getting the Bolsheviks into power in 1917 during the First World War. NGOs were running around ostensibly helping all the refugees across Europe, but actually they had a secret operation on the side in which they were gathering as many documents from archives as possible in each of the nation states they were involved in, sucking up any information that would show the hand of the manipulators who got the war going, mm. specifically inter-ambassador embassy documents that would reveal that the First World War was completely contrived by the Empire of the time, the British Empire. Yeah, it was actually, uh, it was Richard Holbrook um, who told, uh, in 2009, told the Associated Press that um, that most of their information about Afghanistan and Pakistan comes from aid organizations. Uh, you know, <laughs> aid organizations in quotes, you know. So they, all of these so-called aid organizations are, well, they might be doing a little bit of aid here and there. They're doing only a particular type of aid for particular uh, parties in, in those countries. And uh, they're they're operating as an arm, as you guys were saying, an arm of Western intelligence agencies. So people should, you know, people need to know that, you know, because when you talk about aid organization and humanitarian organization and stuff, it tugs at people's heartstrings and stuff. But uh that's not really what these these are about. There are very few genuine aid or humanitarian humanitarian organizations that haven't been compromised because you know it's uh, to paraphrase uh, Henry Kissinger about Chile. You know, it's uh, the issues are just the issues of war and conquest and stuff are far too important to let a bunch of do-gooders go in there and and uh, just run the thing themselves. You know, I mean, this is. This is a war situation and, and information has to be controlled, you know, so you can't just let these people go in and do whatever they want, you know. And that's been known, uh, as Neil was saying, that's uh, been a policy for a very long time. Um, but on the, on the, what do, what do you call it? Ceasefire mm-hmm. and uh, no fly zone. Uh, the hypocrisy is just uh, staggering, you know, although we shouldn't be surprised. Um, the U.S. government kind of thrives on hypocrisy. It's 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 a way of life for for America and the American government. <clears throat> Pretty much everything they say is a lie, in, in one way or another. 
But um, it's just amazing to me to hear them talk about getting all bleeding hearty uh, uh, now, you know, they're all, their hearts are bleeding now for the Syrian people, you know, uh, and we're meant to take this seriously when for the past five years they just sat on their asses and did absolutely nothing while jihadi nutjobs rampaged through Syria, massacring people, chopping their heads off, and uh, they had a no-fly zone then. And of course, when we talk about no-fly zone, and just to be clear here, when the US talks about a no-fly zone, they were very specific about it. In fact, the uh, US Defense Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter, said a couple of days ago to the Senate uh, arms... Armed committee. Armed, they are, yeah, there's a bunch of armed senators uh, <laughs> and uh, said to him, you Bob know, Graham. when we talk about, uh, yeah, said to Bob Graham, listen, when we talk about the no-fly zone, of course, we're only talking about a no-fly zone for Russia and Syria. There is no question that they would, uh, that, they would not, that would not apply to the U.S., so what they're talking about when they say no-fly zone, when the U.S. talks about that, they're talking about an air superiority zone, as in the only planes in the air would be American planes, and for somehow or other, uh, Russian and Syrian planes would be forced to be grounded. This is what they're getting at. We were talking about this the other day, and it, it was kind of funny. You know, we were laughing at just um, uh, watching these people, you know, uh, talk about this, talk publicly, and you know, they they, they publish the, the the video of them talking to the Senate in, in this way. And these American, you know, elitists or exceptionalists, whatever you want to call them, are confronted with a problem that they haven't really come across before in their long, illustrious history of dominating the world, and that is to have someone come along to them and say, no, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. And more to the point, you can't do that. They're just like, they just they just sit there in, in, in shock and awe at the very fact that someone would ever be in a position to say that. Well, people can say it, but usually people have said it in the past, get bombed. But the problem is, the real problem is this time for them that the person, the, in, the entity or the, the individual or the country saying this to them, Russia, actually uh, can't be bombed. So they have a real problem. They're like, eh, this doesn't, this isn't computing, you know? Because what we do in a situation is when someone says, uh, up yours, America, you know, no way, back off, we bomb them, right? And we, we smack them, and, and, and that's how we get to be rulers of the world. But this time, uh, we can't do that. And that's where I have my problem, you know? This is where I, as Secretary of Defense or Senator or whatever in America, has, has the problem. How is it that we can't do what we've always done? Can someone explain that to me? You know, Senator Bob Graham's asking the Secretary of Defense, can you explain this to him? You know, why is it that we can't bomb the hell out of whoever we want anymore? And Ash Carter's going, well, you see, it's complicated. But I don't really know what the answer to that is either. So Bob, uh, Senator Bob, Bob Graham's then coming back, okay, so how do we establish this, uh, this no fly zone? How do we stop Russia from flying and Syria from flying their planes over Syria and bombing our terrorists? And Ash Carter's like, uh, well, we're working on that one. Um, yeah, but uh, Mr. Carter, how are we going to do that? You know, because that's what we need to do. So how do we go ahead and do that? Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll go ahead and do that. Yeah, well, actually, we won't. But, yeah. And they're just, the two of them are sitting there having this conversation, and none, neither of them seem able to grasp the concept 
that they've just been basically checkmated or being told back off, you can't do this, you know, and it's like the person who's never been told no in their lives, you know, they don't understand the the, the actual meaning of the word, you know, mm-hmm. well, and they're told it and they're... Well, uh, the head military guy, Dunford, was there as well, and he answered right. that question for him. He said, you know, what will it take? And he just flat out said, well, it would require a war against Russia and Syria. <laughs> right. And they're like, so, and then Bob Graham came back and when he said that, he asked him, um, he said, so do you see, Bob Graham says, do you see um, Assad being in power? Or do you, do you see any situation where Assad would not be in power by January 2017 or, or in January 2017? Do you, do you see him still in power? And the two guys said, yeah, I, well, well, we don't see any situation where he wouldn't be in power um, in January 2017. And um, and then in response to that, Graham said, "So, so what do you do? You have an alternative plan? <laughs> do you have, you know, assuming that this whole situation doesn't work, i.e., we don't get get our own way uh, through the current uh, strategy that we're using of lying to everybody and uh, bombing humanitarian convoys? If that doesn't work, do you have an alternative to to a plan B to?" To win this, to to win this thing, to so we can be exceptional still, and uh, and he said, yeah, well, we have various plans that we're looking at, and if the president, they're uh, fluid, if the fluid, <laughs> and if the president ever ever wants us to change, you know, if president if the president decides, President Obama decides to change the tack that we're on right now, and 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 wants us to do something different well we'll we have plans for those contingencies and of course what they were talking around was what bob graham you know the southern gentleman was uh was saying was uh, um do you have a plan for bombing russia or for going to war with russia um and the two guys were mm, yeah we have we've got plans yeah for stuff so it was it was just a big farce to to listen to it. It was funny to watch them. Well, I think the, we discussed this show. The date he gave, January twenty seventeen. What's uh, the ants in Graham's pants here? Are yeah. there's about to be a potential transition of power on the S right. to Donald Trump, yeah. and they want this done and dusted mm-hmm. before then. Can we get this done so as a as a going away present for Obama? Can we like screw over Russia and win the war in Syria and, and get rid of Assad all by November? Can we do that? And they're like, no, not really. And he's like, damn, well, so how do we do it then? And they and they didn't have an answer. So but yeah, the point was um the point was if Trump comes in. If, if Trump wins, and I'm assuming Graham here wasn't sure, Bob Graham wasn't sure that uh, Hillary would necessarily win um, or would be chosen or whatever, and he was worried that if Trump comes in, then Russia wins, basically. Uh, so, but getting back to my previous point about the um, about the no-fly zone, it's just it's hysterical, you know. Um, uh, the bleeding heart the bleeding heart neocons are out in force, you know. But 
think of the people of Syria and Russia's evil. Look what it's doing to the poor people of Syria. For five years, they flew around, or didn't fly around uh, uh, Russia when they before, or didn't fly around Syria before Russia entered the fray. They had four years uh, of opportunity to bomb and uh, bomb all the terrorists and get rid of them overnight. And I mean, if if people remember, I don't know if everybody had the same impression, but I think quite a few people had the impression of uh, during the, from. But 2011, 2012, 2013, 14, the, uh, even after ISIS came on the scene, there was real question in people's minds of wh- why isn't why isn't America doing some, doing something about this? Why aren't the Americans and the Brits actually bombing anybody or anything? Why aren't they having any effect? Mm. And the obvious answer was that they weren't actually doing any bombing at all. They were sitting far from bombing them; they were actually supporting them, <clears throat> and they were just dropping. And even Russia said at one point over the past year they looked at a site. Uh, that was a that was released as a by the British, I think, or the Americans as a site of one of the targets they had bombed. And the Russians came out and said, "Yeah, we had a look at that and uh, that site." And they produced pictures, I think, of it as well. And it was uh, they said, "Toss it looked like it was a derelict village that no one was ever in." So one of your bombing sites against Daesh was just this pile of rubble in the Syrian desert. Basically, that's what you were that's what you were doing. Basically, flying around for four years, you were flying around periodically, not very often, flying around Syria claiming to be bombing the evil terrorists and they were just bombing the dirt. Uh, and meanwhile, they were actually funding and supporting and training and arming the terrorists. Because <clears throat> yeah, the whole point spent, of the terrorists... Yeah, they spent five the trillion the over that five years as well. Right. The whole point of the terrorist army is that it's an American, it's a Western terrorist army that was had the task of overthrowing uh, the Syrian government, you know, of attacking the Syrian army and overthrowing the Syrian government. The people, just in case people don't remember that from the very beginning, you know, that's actually what this is all about. So for them to turn around now and say, we need a no-fly zone, i.e. we need to be the only ones in the air so we can we can save the Syrian people when we watched the Syrian people being slaughtered for four years and did nothing when we could have done something, it's just, uh, well, it, the, the hypocrisy scale is just, it was long ago, blown, you know, so I don't know where they are on the pocket scale now. They're, they're through the clouds, basically, so it's it's just hilarious, really, to listen to them talk like this. And um, and now the military is coming out with their hats in their hands, saying, well, if you really want success for Syria and, and for future wars against Russia, we're going to need another trillion dollars in the next 10 years. <laughs> And they need an increase in the military budget of eighteen billion. And Congress what is what they just, really mean by that, what they really mean by that is to to to, to divide up that trillion dollars between all of the uh, all of the warmongers in the U.S. You know the the corporate and military and and political warmongers in the U.S. to make them all feel better when they have to face into the fact that uh, they're no longer the exceptional nation and no longer ruling the world. You know that's just that's sympathy money or compassion money. <laughs> I don't think they'll ever accept it. I think that Senate armed committee hearing was just really instructive at how it'll never compute. They're going to go down with the ship because they don't believe it's possible for it to go down. Well, but that's that's the test. That's It's an interesting test of someone like that who doesn't know how to submit or doesn't know how to accept defeat, uh, but is faced with the facts all around them that they've been defeated. And what does a person in that situation do? Do do they have a certain level of self-preservation where they realize that 
uh, you know, their only option would be a nuclear war with Russia in which, you know, the, everything that they prize and hold dear, I suppose, i.e. their position to power would be under threat. So would they be willing to uh, effectively, you know, if I can't, to take the approach of, if I can't have it, no one can, no one can, and I'll wreck the whole thing, including for myself, just mm-hmm. out of spite, because I can't accept, you know. So it's a question of whether, they're, how, how crazy these people are, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, what I don't understand, though, well, one question we might want to answer is why Russia even needs an agreement with the USA, you know? Uh, why don't they just go ahead and continue with their um, their terrorist uh, butt-kicking uh, program and end the whole situation? You know, why does it... Uh, I mean, the, the Russians seem to be well aware of the fact that when they, in the past couple of situations where they've initiated a ceasefire that they, the Russians themselves have said that all that happens is that the jihadi, the West jihadi terrorists just uh, use the opportunity to resupply with food and weapons and all sorts of stuff, you know. So why would Russia, why is Russia even bothering, you know? Well, uh, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And um, I think part of the reason is, just goes back to what you've been saying for the past few minutes, Joe. And that is, uh, you know, the the U.S. is absolutely relentless uh, in pursuing regime change in Syria and God knows what else. And um, the Russians seem to have a, a very good grasp of this uh, this mindset. And so, um, you know, they know uh, that the U.S. Uh, is is going to destroy Syria unless. They stand in the way, and um, they're they're basically doing two, a couple of things. I think they're they're in negotiating, and uh, they're giving the uh, the U.S. an opportunity uh, to um, to prove itself one way or the other, and they're also just trying to, at all costs, even by painstaking negotiation prevent this uh, greater probability of, of larger war from occurring. Uh, and, and anything is preferable to a larger war at this time. So I think that's part I'm, of the strategy. I don't know. I'm thinking that Russia played this very well mm-hmm. as a way of exposing the U.S. hypocrisy in the whole thing. And I'm sure they knew that this wasn't going to fly. <clears throat> and of course, they were very prepared for. It. As you know, they're they're tearing up uh, Aleppo right now with Syria and Russia. And in fact, it's caused uh, France, UK, and the US to call for another UN Security Council emergency meeting, which they're having as we speak. Right now, yeah. And of right course, now. during right as part of that. Uh, a part of that uh, discussion that's going on at the UN, and it was called by the British, the French, and the US. Right. Uh, to, and of course, the, what the representatives did was uh, sit there and waffle on for an interminable number of minutes, and they're still still going, I'm sure, uh, about the humanitarian uh, crisis in Syria. Suddenly, it's all humanitarian crisis, and suddenly it's, it's well they're, they're ramping up the Assad's barrel bombing and Russia bombing apartment blocks and poor people dying and all this kind of stuff suddenly they've got a bleeding heart for Syria basically 
and the three of them have just these three this axis of evil America, France, and the Brits <laughs> have uh, decided that um, that it's time to go full bore on the propaganda offensive, the, the humanitarian propaganda offensive, to try and somehow this is their this is their, an, an act of desperation, really, because what do they expect to, to achieve? I mean, they can throw the entire Western media if they want. They can cover the entire Western media with pictures of of, of dead palace, dead uh, Syrian children if they want. But Russia and Syria are not going to stop in their stated uh, objectives, which is to, uh, to you know, to, to eliminate the foreign threat to the Syrian government, which uh, Syria, obviously, as the as the targeted country, is entirely uh, is fully entitled to do, as any country is when they're uh, invaded by a, a horde. Um, but the other thing. The only thing I can think of is that, and this maybe gets to the heart of the problem in a certain sense, is that Russia actually cares about the people of Syria. Uh, obviously, the Syrian government cares about the people of Syria, and Russia cares about the Syrian, peop- uh, Syrian people. Um, you know, they, they, they basically have a certain, at least a certain level of empathy for the suffering of the Syrian people, and they know that the U.S. and its partners uh, pose, uh, have posed, obviously, and continue to pose a considerable threat uh, to the people, to the lives of the people of Syria because of their, their ability to um, to shuttle in or to, to continue to push or fund and train and arm these uh, jihadi mercenaries who go and wreak havoc across Syria. So uh, I think Russia realizes that it, it does actually need, as much as, as you were saying there, um, William, that, or Alain, sorry, that, um, <clears throat> that Russia wanted to expose um, the U.S. kind of double dealing, and that's why they called for a ceasefire. And then they called for a ceasefire, knowing that the U.S. can't actually accept it, or if they do accept it, they would have to actually stop doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would have to put yeah. their money where their mouth is. You put the, the Russia has been trying to put the U.S. in, in a bind, effectively, mm-hmm. uh, but not in a bad way. They're simply saying, "I think this is what you've been saying." Yeah. So now do what you've been saying you're going to do, and right. uh, here's let's let's, official, let's let's sign on the bottom on the dotted line. Let's all agree to this. We'll sign a document that where you will do. You say you will do what you've been saying you want to do all along. Yeah, I think without having any illusions about how the U.S. operates, they're holding out the for the possibility of forcing a choice mm-hmm. inside the U.S. power structure. Or exposing the fact, exposing or revealing who actually has the the real, who holds yeah. the, the real reins of power in the because U.S. Is it the office of the of the president and the secretary of state, or is it other people who are effectively the the war party or the war contingent? I yeah. based out of the Pentagon. If U.S. jets, and uh, not just clandestinely, but were known, were seen, shown, and uh, globally known to have started working alongside. Russians in Syria, it will be extremely difficult to go back on that once that starts. Hmm. And it how, how, do you, the, uh, how do you how do you re-enemize Russia? How do you make it the Cold War again mm-hmm. after going down that route? Mm-hmm. Right, right. I think that's partly where Russia strategically wants to get, because then it has at least. Uh, it, yeah, it, it'll have that basic strategy. Yeah, by by the verbal. So, nuts. someone in the U.S. 
uh, is of the opinion, some group in the U.S., as they always have been, I suppose, is of the opinion that um, the thing that we never do, basically, is partner with Russia in any way officially. We never partner officially uh, internationally with Russia. Um, because suddenly the sanctions, the shunning right. at the G8 and all right. that, all those things become really difficult right. after that. You don't partner with your enemy, basically. Yeah. And that exposes the fact that Russia is the enemy, yeah? So... Well, the way I see how the Russians got into this and the, the way they were approaching this ceasefire deal is if you look at if you look at it from the, the context of like the, the, the global image that Russia is presenting of itself... Um, you know, the, abiding by and uh, like um, raising up the standards of international law and negotiations and and things like that. Then, from the Russian perspective, you look at the situation on the ground, and you've got these two possibilities: you've got like further war, basically just continuing the way things are going, and you have a real cessation of hostilities. Now, I think that for for Syrians, for Assad, and for the Russians, a cessation of hostilities would be ideal. So if you could imagine everyone except the people that say they're al-Nusra and the people that, are, that, are, that say they're ISIS, if everyone else stopped fighting, that would be a good thing. Just on the surface, you know, that would be, that would be great because there, a lot of fighting would stop and the, 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 the battles against the, the acknowledged terrorist groups would be able to proceed. And that would be a, you know, a great, that would be great for the humanitarian crisis. So if you look at it just from that, then then that option would be weighted. Okay, well, that, will be, that would be great if the U.S. Were, were to do what it says it wants to do. But um, the Russians look at all contingencies. So they say, they probably, they, you know, let's say they give that a weight of, you know, 5% chance, and there's a 95% chance that it won't work. Well, it's worth taking that 5% chance, but we plan for the, the bigger probability and what we're going to do after that. So if you look at them going into these negotiations, it... Um, it perfectly preserves that um, that public image of wanting to to deal with things nonviolently to stop the war, and because that's true, that would be the ideal situation. At the same time, like you guys have been saying, it leaves open the possibility for what what do we do if it fails? Because it's probably going to fail. Now, there's a slight possibility that it won't because it seems like people like Kerry are are really. Um, you know, wanting to get into these negotiations, they're you know they're even willing to make a whole bunch of concessions, and uh, and they sign the document. Okay, well, so that's that's a small step in the right direction, but you know we're still you know dubious about whether the military will follow through with it. So, so how do you how do you set this all up so that you win either way? Well, if on, on that tiny pr- probability that it goes through, then great. If on the bigger probability it doesn't, well, this is how we approach it. You, be, you guys have a week. You guys have seven days to put your money where your mouth is. And so this isn't like um, like the last ceasefire that just kind of like uh, went to pieces and then they, the, like the, the rebels pretty much had months to, to regroup and get all kinds of arms. This was like, uh, it, it seemed this time that there was a, a much stricter um, time limit. So, okay, seven days. You guys have seven days. And on Monday, as soon as, uh, you know, two days after the Americans, uh, you know, massacred Syrian soldiers, Syria said, okay, that's the end of the ceasefire, no mention of renewing it. And then within days after that, they announced this major, you know, massive offensive on East Aleppo. And this was a battle that was going on before the ceasefire. 
In fact, it was the, probably the, the, the main motivation for the ceasefire. And mm-hmm. this, this is what always happens, right? When the, when, the, 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 when the people, when the armies, when the, the fighters that the U.S. hates are about to win, the U.S. wants a ceasefire. And of course, the the under the surface, the reason they want the ceasefire is because they want their guys to stop getting killed. They want a chance for them to rearm. And I mean, we saw this twice in in Ukraine with the Minsk agreements. So this is what this was the, like that, or, or this was the U.S.'s motivation for this ceasefire. But now they've got seven days, and I mean, uh, so of course, well, not of course, but the the main probability was that the U.S. wouldn't follow through or couldn't follow through. So that's what happens. Syrians say, "Okay, ceasefire is over," and then, bam! It's like we're we're not only right back where we left off a week ago, but we're intensifying, and uh, and and we're not going to stop. So after the ceasefire fails, now from Russia's perspective, now they've pretty much got the U.S. in even more of a bind because the U.S. has had two opportunities and has failed spectacularly both times to do what they say they're going to do. So now, when you look at the official statements that are coming out just in the past day or two, um, because it, as usual, the first statements are always kind of vague. There's no real blame assigned. Um, they're kind of just typical diplomatic statements. Now you've got people like Lavrov and the foreign minister of Syria, Mualem, and the UN ambassador from Syria, Jafari, and they're all saying that the, only, the precondition from now on for a ceasefire is that we have to see the separation of Nusra from the moderates. We won't even consider another ceasefire until we see that actually happening. Now, this wasn't the, this wasn't the condition of the previous ceasefires. The previous condition of the ceasefire was that everyone ceases fire, and then the U.S. has several days to start the process of, um, of separating these uh, moderates from the extremists. Well, that, and, that, and so the Syrians and Russians are saying, well, no, that you guys had your last chance. Now, from now on, we're not going to negotiate anything until that happens. So they're basically mm-hmm. saying there will no, there will be no more ceasefire deals because now they know, and now it's been made obvious that the moderates can't be separated from the extremists because, like everyone in the alternative media, they're is the saying, same people because they're the same people. Well, but of course, it doesn't make any any sense if people even thought about it. I mean, they keep parroting this idea of the moderates and the extremists and stuff, but. Um, if 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 there are moderates hanging out with extremists, how how can they be moderates? Mm-hmm. Or is that the is 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 it that the extremists aren't the extremists that they're all moderates? You know, I mean, when you put two people together and they're hanging out in their buddy buddy type thing, one of them can't be moderate and one and the other extremist if they're all hanging out and do and have the same goal. They both have an extremist or a moderate goal. Mm-hmm. You know, they can't be on the same team. Moderates and extremists aren't the same thing. Well, you you know, Kirby explained it. You've got to go back and listen to Kirby. He said, <laughs> the problem is they're intermingling. Mingling? Well, you don't mingle. <laughs> well, Extremists they, and moderates don't mingle. They have tea in the same Chocolate cafes. Cheese. Yeah. And they end up mingling and one guy leaves his banner behind and, oops, I'm carrying the ISIS flag. Oh, yeah. how did that happen? But that's a, that's a whole so, distinction uh, in, in the U.S., a whole question that isn't even addressed. It's, it's shunted away with all the other information that would even create a question in the minds of people who know yeah. that this thing is going yeah, yeah. on in Syria. Um, it's I meant want... to be self-explanatory. Yes. 
at this point, like even serious analysts actually distinguish in their in their considerations of what's going on in Syria. They they'll give without putting in scare quotes to talk about moderates and rebels. <laughs> what? You can't do that. They have to all be in scare quotes and it has to be taken with a huge grain of salt. Uh, if you're speaking in those terms, you're lying or you believe the lie or you're, you're playing to the, the false narrative, the fantasy. Well, I just wanted to comment on something Joe said a couple of minutes ago. He said it, it doesn't even make any sense. And, you know, when, when we hear about Samantha Power, for instance, uh, who's really doing the grandstanding in the UN Security Council? A stunt. And we and when we hear about you know Ban Ki Moon, who's got it right on Israel for one, but doesn't have it right on Syria. He's come out with recent statements uh, condemning the the humanitarian uh, uh, condition in Syria. Uh, it's just a reminder of how the U.S. plays so well on emotions. Uh, there is an appeal to emotions that, that's made um, by these individuals, whether they're witting or unwitting, whether they realize they're doing it or not, uh, that um, short circuits any kind of uh, critical questioning about the whole situation. You know, humanitarian crisis becomes the foremost um, issue or, or thing to react to in the minds of most people uh, by design. Well, I think right. another another angle of of what's going on here is that um, not only did, did Lavrov and these guys come out with this statement about um, the need for this so-called separation to take place before any negotiations come about, but the the Syrians, like the Syrian foreign minister, just gave an interview today or yesterday where he said that the the main conclusion to draw from this latest ceasefire is that the Americans are in league with the terrorists. And so, I mean, people have, have been saying that for a long time, but now it's it's kind of got this, this bigger place now, this uh, greater emphasis being placed on that fact. And um, so the, the major examples... So has it, go ahead. Has, has it been, you think it has been the Russians, uh, part of the Russians' goal all along has been to get us to this point. Well, yes. expose for public consumption the, exactly. the, the long-standing conspiracy theory that America is in bed with terrorists, which mm -hmm. uh, goes back to 9-11. Mm -hmm. And is it's this been... Possibly, yes. Is this possibly a version of the 9-11, the, the much talked about in conspiracy websites, uh, idea that uh, the Russians had some information uh, on 9-11 that it was a, a kind of uh, an inside job or something and that, you know, that that, that Russia uses terrorism uh, or false flag terrorism effectively to, to secure its place in the world, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems that it's possible that this is one version of of how they might go about doing that. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going on. And if you just look at how things have been playing out on Syria, it's like the Russians have been playing this long game. Mm -hmm. It's like establishing a paper trail, but... Um, using current conditions and on the Russians' terms. So one of the benefits of all these ceasefire agreements is that you've had this kind of incremental public disclosure of the reality of the situation. 
And the Russians have managed to do that without going back to 9-11, without bringing up, you know, old events, because I don't, at least observing how the, how the Russians work, um, they don't do that. And, and I doubt that they'll come out with, you know, any big 9-11 revelations. What it seems to me that they're doing, at least at this point, is using the current situation, the facts on the ground, to slowly and incrementally move the public perception and narrative towards that reality but using, for example, the, what's going on in Syria. And so mm-hmm. now we have this going on, and the and every time the U.S. screws up and, and does something really stupid, it just, it just uh, falls into that narrative and is able to be exploited by, by the Russians for that exact purpose. So you had this mm-hmm. attack on Deir Azor, and any way you look at it, despite what the U.S. says, this was like uh, American collaboration working like hand-in-hand with ISIS. And right. just as one example of that, we've got a sought exclusive on the on the page, um, just from yesterday, about the planes that were used. Because we all know the narrative by now, or the story, what actually happened. Like Ilan was, uh, Ilan laid it out at the beginning of the show. You had these um, these planes. They attacked Syrian army positions, and then right after that, ISIS went on this offensive and took the the positions that were attacked by the the U.S. Air Force. Or not, not necessarily, but uh, the U.S. coalition planes, whoever specifically was involved. Now, a few more details have come out since then. There's um, 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 a survivor from the attack gave an interview with uh, the Russian website Life.ru, and this was translated by, um, I think, Sputnik, like Arabic Sputnik. And we, anyways, it's in, in, it's in this article, article that we have, and this guy give, gave a few more details, not many, but just basically said that they first saw the planes and they thought they were doing recon on the ISIS positions, and then they started, then the, the planes circled back and actually started launching, you know, airstrikes on the Syrian army positions. And then as this was going on, the, they, they'd launch airstrikes, and then the planes would actually make another pass and use their machine guns to take out the the people that were wounded. So this was a mul- these guys were running multiple flights over this area, and as this was happening, they said that the the ISIS guys that were right on the border there, right on the front line, were like firing their weapons in the air as as if in victory. And then as soon as the airstrikes were done, the the ISIS guys moved in. And so on the surface, this looked like a standard military procedure of, the, uh, of an air force providing air cover for ground forces. Um, this was just, it's just a standard technique, and this, was, this is exactly what it looked like. Now, the planes that were involved, there were two was F-16s, I think it was, a drone, and then two A-10s, the, the Warthogs. Now, these are um, kind of ugly-looking planes, as the name suggests, and they are... Um, in the article, we've got quotes from military experts, American military experts, generals, um, ex-generals, JTACs, which are, I can't remember what JTAC stands for, but it's like, um, these are the guys that are on the ground, ground troops that call in airstrikes. Now, these quotes basically say the A-10 can run one mission, and its primary purpose is to be used in operations utilizing JTACs, utilizing ground, utilizing ground forces that call in airstrikes. And this is the only mission that they're designed for, because they're low-flying planes. They're, these these were the planes I'm pretty sure that were used on the attack on the um, the Doctors Without Borders hospital in Kunduz in Afghanistan. Right. So you had these Afghan guys embedded in the in the town, and they were allegedly the ones that said, "Oh, we're receiving fire from 
from this uh, hospital area, and so they called in this airstrike. They were on the ground there, and they were directing the planes towards the the hospital. That's the way these planes run missions. So not only do we have what appears to be a standard air cover ground troop operation, these planes that were involved are used exclusively for that purpose, where the ground troops will call in the airstrike and then go in and basically mop up or take the take the location that was attacked by the planes. So any way right, you to look your at point, yeah, go ahead. Your point is that uh, the narrative that was given um, afterwards by the U.S. that the attack on the Syrian army was a mistake is highly implausible because uh, the planes that were used require or include or involve people on the ground who have eyes on the situation, as in mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not an issue of dis- making a mistake or, or not being able to distinguish two groups on the ground, but you have people on the ground who can see very clearly where one group is and where, not, where another group is, and they are the ones who actually say, uh, give the exact coordinates. Mm-hmm. So whoever was on the ground relaying coordinates to these planes knew exactly who they were hitting. So it was no mistake. Exactly. And so what it looked like was exactly what it was. Ground forces in operations with and collaborating with air forces to launch an attack. And so right. this, this was the U.S. Um, allying itself directly with ISIS. Well, that's what they've been doing all along, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. so. It's yeah, it's getting hard, hard information or, or more official information that uh, that proves what everybody knows to be true. Everybody should, or what everybody should know to be true, mm-hmm. that it is actually true that the U.S. uses uh, Al Qaeda to uh, to f- a fight its wars, b justify the invasions of other countries. Uh, now, on the, and that's why it makes me think of nine eleven, obviously. So, um, but um, on the, on this document, this uh, ceasefire document that was kept hidden by the U.S. and then a bit of it was released. What what came out was that, um, well, more or less, what came out was that the U.S. had a real problem, was dragging its feet, did not want uh, to list Al Nusra, or allow the U.S. or agree with uh, agree with the Russians that they would all target al-Nusra together, but there was also another group that the U.S. Con- continues to insist is, that are not allowed to be, um, should not be targeted, and I think it's... Um, Arar, what's the, Arar what al-Sham. Bab al- but what? But, Arar al-Sham. Arar al-Sham. Yeah. Arar al-Sham. Arar, uh, yeah, Arar <laughs> al-Sham, basically. So both of those groups are more or less, in particular al-Nusra, but also Arar al-Sham, are basically their previous name was Al-Qaeda in Syria. So you're talking here about the U.S. saying, leave Al-Qaeda alone. Do not bomb Al-Qaeda. Now, how anyone who, any American <laughs> in particular, can look back on 9-11 mm-hmm. and everything that has happened since and the whole propaganda and, and information that came out around 9-11 and what it, what it meant for the world, how they can sit there and stomach the idea that the U.S. government today would say, leave Al-Qaeda alone as part of a war on terror that they are supposedly fighting that was launched because Al-Qaeda attacked the U.S. on 9-11. It's just, uh, I don't know how anyone could... could Mind-boggling. Could, could tolerate that. It's the big lie. But it's, it's the big lie. But it does get back to 9-11, you know, because really it's, uh, 
the message is the U.S., like I said, uses al-Qaeda. Um, Al-Qaeda is effectively a covert arm of the U.S. government. So if, and, and that evidence, as we've just been discussing, is being increasingly uh, released and made official by the Russians. Uh, so if that's the case, then what does that say about 9-11, you know? I mean, was that the case back then as well? What did the, was the U.S. body-body back then with al-Qaeda? Was it simply using al-Qaeda to justify uh, a war on terror? In that case, was 9-11 really a self-inflicted wound? And also this week, Obama's got himself in another knot because he's been forced to block this law that would allow the families of victims on 9-11 to sue the Saudi government. Uh, and at about the same time, the Senate uh, discusses there's a bit of resistance, but then finally gets it approved, uh, uh, a bill to approve uh, weapons sales to Saudi Arabia uh, to allow them to continue to... Uh, so a two-track thing there. You're not allowed to accuse any... You're not allowed that no 9-11 families are allowed to sue uh, Saudi Arabia for their involvement in 9-11. And we must continue to give your taxpayer dollars to Saudi Arabia so one, that it can continue to 1.15 billion in Yemen. right pretty sick I mean I mean if any Jesus I mean if people in the US really just sat down to the average person if you could present them this information you think they'd just throw up <laughs> on the spot they'd just barf they'd be spontaneous barfing like and then their heads would explode I mean really <laughs> Hmm. Anyway, it's all fun and games. Well, um, of a very psychopathological sort. I don't know how much time we're gonna gonna get for this, but how about this for the reaction of people in the U.S.? This is subconscious, of course, but there is being a kind of a society-wide spasm that's going on. In just the last twenty-four hours, there have been four major incidents involving multiple stabbings, multiple shooters. I can't directly connect it to our discussion, but when I hear that, I hear, I think of it as like a kind of a societal reaction to what's going on at the level of the official narrative, the, the, the deepest beliefs about who we are, you know. Our it's calling people just to go mental. Yeah, there were three stories that I saw come in today. About shooting, stabbings, shootings, stabbings in, in, in different places um, in the U.S. And that's on the back of several more that have happened over the past week or two. It's just like, it's almost like a daily occurrence, you know? Yeah, he had five um, shot in Washington at a Burlington Mall that's in Washington State. And then he had eight shot in Baltimore. And nine were shot near the University of Illinois. Then he had six stabbed near a university in Boston. Well, I guess the other question is, to what extent are these events uh, in some way induced as a, as a way to distract from these very um, big revelations or potential revelations about the U.S.'s participation in, in Syria and its support of ISIS and al-Qaeda? Hmm. Yeah, it's... it's um Part of the question, the, the Baltimore police chief described what happened last night. Um, Commissioner Kevin, Kevin Davis said this was a planned 
premeditated act of retaliatory, retaliatory violence. I think he's referring to an earlier mass shooting on September 8th in Baltimore. So he's insinuating that the two events are connected. But he specifically says we had three shooters. They emerged from three different directions. They planned it. It was premeditated. One came from an alley. Two came from down the street. They shot at a group of people standing there. They're still at large, as far as I know. Um, <laughs> that doesn't sound like your average neighborhood spat. Uh, that's three guys. The guy in the in the in the mall in in Washington, he's caught on camera. I mean, they got a a face a profile of him. They know who he is. They arrested him. Uh, the arresting officer said that when he was arresting him, he behaved, quote, almost like a zombie. I said to him, you're under arrest. And he didn't say anything at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's a whole issue of who, who are these people? Are they just random people going off? Um, have they been messed with for some purposes unknown? Yeah, um, MK Ultra just... Is it... Uh, is it all done in some organized, controlled way? I, I doubt it. I doubt to the extent that, you know what I mean, that it's all like... Well, well the thing is, there may have well have been people in the past who, uh, and very likely were people who were mind-programmed, and I mean, we've covered a lot of those uh, situations, those active shooter situations that have gone gone on over the past, really since 9-11, actually, strangely enough. Um and particularly in the past 10 years or so, people going and shooting a lot of different people and then the evidence that there was more than one shooter there, this guy couldn't have done that kind of shooting. It seems reasonable enough to assume that that those kind of operations were actually staged as distractions or as social engineering, whatever. But the leadership of a nation, uh, of a society that would engage in that kind of abuse of the population <clears throat> are obviously not very nice people and their influence is being exerted uh, in general across all of society. So that type of person who would do that, who society abuse society in that way, abuse individuals and, and kill other people, these kind of false flag operations, they eventually, their influence in society will eventually create such a destructive uh, have, have such a destructive effect on society that it'll start to affect people in a sovereign kind of way in the sense that you'll it'll have people have its starting, own momentum yeah people will start freaking out and breaking down because of the broad influence of these people across all par parts of society because uh, that's just the kind of people they are I mean they're horrible terrible destructive leaders who, who basically turn to crap everything that they touch and people in control of a society who do that, I mean, you're going to end up creating social conditions where people themselves will will start to feel the effects of it and will start acting in the ways that you've been trying to pretend mm -hmm. people had acted. And the among their key henchmen are police. Yeah. Who aren't letting up well, shooting they're, people. They're there to abuse the people in, in society in general when they start to actually react against this negative influence that has been ongoing for so long when you know, we have psychopaths in position of power who basically screw up and, and turn to crap, basically, like I was saying, a society across the board. 
and the ill effects that that has on the average person in society. When those people start to react against those negative effects of mismanagement of society in that way, then the police are there to to blame them as vict- to to blame them, blame the victims effectively, blame them as the uh, as the as the antisocial <clears throat> the antisocial element in society. When in fact those are the only people, by and large, those are are people who actually are having at least a, a kind of a genuine uh, response, even though it's not a good one, but it's a, it's a, it's an understandable response to the ill effects uh, that that are being felt by by pretty much everyone. You know, there's maybe frailer people in society or more more uh, unstable people in society who will kind of go off first. You know, mm-hmm. so I think that's what kind of we're going to see more and more of uh, these days, and uh, as time goes on, uh, falling apart. More riots. Yeah, as well. More violence in general. Well, their ideology is violent, right? The government's ideology is one of violence. And, uh, you know, imagine violent parents. What do violent parents, what kind of children do violent parents create? They create disturbed, violent children. Well, this is what, on a macro-social scale, um, this is what's been happening in, in Western culture in general and seems to be in particular in the U.S., that the parents, i.e. the leaders, being violent themselves, have ha, have ended up producing or are producing an increasing number of people who are who are, who are the product of that. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up there, unless anyone has any final thoughts. All right. No. Nope. Want to take us out, Elon? Sure. Take us well, out for the night, Elon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, folks, it's you know, obviously a heavy topic. Joe, I appreciate uh, your comments and insights towards the end there, especially. Um, just to add, it, it seems like what's happening in the U.S. with all these uh, bullying provocations on society is a ref- just a reflection of how the U.S. is behaving uh, geopolitically. Um, but anyway, on that point, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Stephen, thank you for calling in our chatters. Thank you as well. Uh, Neil, Joe, thanks for participating. Harrison, William, good show, guys. And uh, we'll see you next week. All right, see you, everyone. Thanks. Have a good day, evening, night, morning. Until next week, bye. (laughs) 